Welcome to Conversation Beneath the Trees, a podcast bringing together scientists, farmers and innovators from all around Ireland to share their ideas and experiences of farming with trees. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary. I work with trees in urban areas as part of social enterprise Pocket Forests. I love what trees can bring to our land and our lives. I'm fascinated by the many benefits they offer to farming and food production. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with Growin. It's funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. Welcome to episode four of Conversation Beneath the Trees. In this episode, we invited a panel of guests to tell us all about the latest happenings in the world of tree fodder, the research into it and its potential uses. We're joined by farmers Michael Maharg and Pete Brennan, Dr. Katerina Theodorodou and Professor Jim McAdam. Um, so thanks everybody for being here. Um, and my name is Catherine Cleary. It's great to meet uh, you all, Jim. I've been meeting you repeatedly on this forum now, but first time meeting Michael, Katerina and Keith. Um, what I might do is just start by asking you to introduce yourselves uh, with who you are, where you are and your interest in this area. So I'll start with you, Katerina, please. So my name is Katerina Fiogoridou. Um, I'm working for Queen's University at the Biological Science Department. I'm an associate professor in farm animal nutrition. So my main research area is to explore nutritional strategies to uh, improve the animal performance uh, and nutrient utilization, and at the same time, reduce the environmental impact uh, caused by uh, livestock. Excellent. So I'm interested in, yeah, in agroforestry, especially in trees as tree fodder for, for animal feed. Terrific. Thanks, Katerina. I'll go next to you, Keith, please. Um, hi, I'm Keith Brennan. I'm a sometime writer, sometime farmer um, in North Roscommon. Um, we have a small livestock farm with rare breed sheep, goats, uh, pigs, and uh, we're hugely interested in um, agroforestry, um, in farming for nature in general, and uh, in reshaping our farm to future proof it um, with, um, with good environmental practices. And that's us. Terrific. Thanks, Keith. Um, Michael, would you like to introduce yourself, please? I'm Michael Maharg. I'm a, a farmer from County Antrim. I farm with my wife, Judy, uh, and um, we decided some years ago to look beyond the family farm and look towards some um, ag agroforestry, agricultural, uh, progressive agricultural type of farming, where we decided to um, take the opportunity to rent out our herd of Irish moil cattle for conservation grazing. And as a result, we now farm around 600 acres of high nature value land, including about 17 hectares of, um, of woodland. Um, very interested in all aspects of um, regenerative farming and the, the way in which all sorts of productive areas on the farm can be used, and in particular, looking now at, at um, the aspects of, of using trees. I've watched my Irish moil cattle graze hedges and trees for many years and very interested to see if with the productivity that there is within those um, those plants and those trees could be used um, for uh, a better fodder. Terrific. Thanks, Michael. It's, uh, there's so many questions I'm going to be asking you about all of that. Jim, can I ask you to introduce yourself, please? 
Uh, hi, Catherine. Yes, as we, we've spoken before, of course, and on these podcasts, but my background really is one in, in agricultural research and particularly being in charge of the agroforestry research program in Northern Ireland uh, since the mid-1980s. And we now we established there at Loch Gall in County Armagh one of I think one of the longest running silvopastoral research experiments, uh, which has given us a lot of evidential uh, backing for the introduction of silvopastoral systems and the integration of basically farm animals uh, and trees together and the ecosystem services benefits that those bring. I've been more of a broad interest in the whole system. Uh, particularly, we were interested in the start, it just in simply grazing animals, grazing the pasture and the impact on the pasture. But as the interest in agroforestry has really taken off in this last few years, there's been a lot of benefits are sort of coming out of the woodwork, if you like, which um, are really ones we didn't predict at the start or we weren't interested in. For example, in 1989, no one really talked about carbon uh, or anything like that. Or, or any thought of how the trees themselves could be a nutritional resource. So that's why I'm particularly glad today to be speaking to uh, practitioners uh, and researchers who are really interested in the value of tree fodder. And I'm really looking forward to what I'm, I'm going to hear about that. That's excellent, Jim. And I think you've given us an episode title, at least in coming out of the woodwork. We're going to have to work that one into a future episode, I think. So thanks for that. Um, Katerina, I'm going to start with you. Um, I watched briefly a delightful short video of a of a, sh a very happy sheep um, making the sounds. Now, I'm not a sheep expert, but this sheep sounded like uh, she was literally uh, smacking her lips with delight. Um, what was she eating and what, what was that about? So that was a really lovely video. So what happened there is um, in the frame of um, a PhD, uh, we're going to investigate the great value of different varieties of willow. Um, initial stage of that PhD was that we searched in the lab, analyzed different varieties of willow, and we concluded that two of them might have a great potential. So then we went to the second stage and we feed sheep with willow. Um, what we would like to see, as I told you, I'm interested on the environmental impact of livestock. We would like to investigate the effect of inclusion of willow on methane and ammonia emissions. So what we did, we did a kind of zero grazing study actually. So we had uh, two groups of uh, sheep, one fed with willow, the other not. We cut fresh willow from the fields and we feed the animals. Mm -hmm. So in that trial, we investigate two different varieties. The reason we select those varieties was as we probably will discuss later, because of the different level of phyactic compounds, which is very, very important in renal. And then at different period of this research study, we um, took samples from rumen, from feces, from urine, and we are in the process of analyzing for ammonia. Uh, the other interesting thing that um, there are not any, many studies on that, and we are happy is that uh, we, we used the green feed unit so, um, green feed unit, maybe you care for what's last. No, um, explain that. Explain the green feed unit to us. Yeah, it's an equipment where we serve the opportunity to measure uh, gas emissions like methane, carbon dioxide, uh, uh, if we want oxygen and hydrogen from individual animals. Mm -hmm. 
So what is happening there? The animal needs to go uh, with the head inside the equipment for just three or five minutes uh, in different intervals in the research period, and that will give us enough time to capture the measure and then analyze the data. Okay, so they're feeding in this unit and you're measuring the gases coming from them. Yeah. Yes. So actually, uh, in that way, uh, we provide some concentrate, then tiny amount, like 100 gram per burn, even less, just to attract mm-hmm. the animal in the unit and serve this time uh, to collect the data. Um, so we're very excited about this study where in the process of analyzing, this as seems promising because what we expect to see is that what we find from a lab work in vitro that methane and ammonia emissions were used where we know uh, was included in the diet. So they're the reducing animal. those two key um, measures that are yes. crucial to, to getting farming to a better place. And do you know the, the extent of that reduction of methane and ammonia from the animals when they were eating willow? From the lab, because uh, in the lab, what we try to do, we uh, simulate what will happen in the stomach of the animal. Uh, so from our in vitro lab work, we found even like 20 or 30 percent reduction of, amo- of uh, mm-hmm. methane. But of course, um, we need to be careful eh? because this is in the vitro, in vitro work and it's not always translated in real life. But it's a good start. It's and, a great um, start. It's a great start. Yeah. Yes, and we are very happy with that. Terrific. Thank you, Katerina. Um, Keith, you are familiar. You you have been feeding your sheep on tree fodder, as you call it. What what do you see happening on your farm? So I think we, we first got interested in tree hay probably about four or five years ago. Um, and, and the interest came from several different perspectives. It, it came, I guess, as um, almost an expression of, of um, thinking about the farm uh, the environment, the ecology, the economics as as a holistic unit and and tree hay and tree fodder and agroforestry in general seem to be pretty much a no-brainer in that in that that respect. Um, we we harvest uh, several species, um, mainly willow actually, um, and we'd begun to harvest willow specifically because we were interested in its in the capacity for willow to to reduce the worm burden um, on um, sheep and goats. Uh, there's some in some studies from from Mexico um, indicating that that if you have those with um, with the warming regime that it can because of the condensed tannins it, it can really reduce the the worm burden. Um, but as we began to dig into it deeper, apart from from reducing our inputs, apart from reducing our medicine, um, we were able to the idea of planting a huge number of, of trees um, from a carbon sequestration perspective. Everything just seemed to come together to make this a very good idea. It's very very good for nature. Mm. Um, it's an inexpensive food stuff. It's available in winter. It's got high sugar, high protein. Um, it helps with carbon sequestration. It helps with building trust with your customer base because if you're planting trees to feed your animals, um, then you're doing exactly what you need to do to future-proof the food supply and to gain consumer trust. And it all came together into one simple, perfect, very age-old thing um, that seemed to represent so many possibilities, economic and ecological, um, for the farm and um, and had so many benefits and, as well ecologically. So a couple of years ago, we had we had an issue with, with milk fever, which is a magnesium deficiency in, around lambing time. And it can be extremely serious. You can lose ewes, you can use lambs. Uh, and it's, it's temporary, though. You just need to get the, the sheep over about a three or four hour period 
period and it's totally fine. But in that first day as well, if the lamb isn't able to get access to colostrum, it's, it can be very, very serious for it and in terms of mothering and them forming a bond and also having healthy lambs that, that, that inherit uh, a biome from, from their ewes as well. It's, that first couple of hours is really important. So um, we had noticed that when the, the ewes, especially the old ewes, go into a field, if it has two things, willow or bramble, even in high summer, those are the first things that it, that it goes for. And, and the idea that your flock, especially your older ewes who, who know um, the territory, know what's good for them is, is a really, really, it's a really useful guide to have in terms of how you farm. Um, and, and we'd taken a, a pile of tree hay and noticed that in the, in the winter as well, they would do things like completely ignore oats and concentrate and go for, for the willow. As soon as, as soon as they tasted it once or twice, they'd spot it across a four acre field and come galloping, you know, using their fifth month coming galloping across a field downhill. Um, to, to, to find this stuff, which was fantastic. And, and on a hunch, um, when we had um, uh, milk fever and, and one of our ewes was down and not able to get up because there's um, part of the problem is joint pain. They can't get up because of joint pain. Um, and I'd brought in everything and, and she hadn't gone for it. Really, really good hay, grain, oats, concentrate, whatever we had, I'd brought in molasses, all sorts of things. Um, and on a hunch, I got down the, 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 the last bit of tree hay that we had up in, up in, in the hayloft and, and put it in front of her. Noticed that she began to nibble. And then we were able to gradually bring that higher and higher up and string it over the rafters and pull it up. Um, and I presume because it was willow, because it has an anti-inflammatory, but also because um, because they absolutely love it. She was able to stand, um, eat, which was really important. She hadn't eaten in about a day. And the lamb was able to stand under her and then feed, um, which meant that their bond was cemented. It meant that the lamb wound up being a very, very healthy and robust lamb. It was able to feed. And, and for the next two or three days, that's what we did until the fresh willow came through. And that's what we started feeding her fresh willow because we kept her in for a couple of days. But for, for another 36 hours, she would find it difficult to stand and, and every couple of hours we'd have to go in and string up a new thing of either um, tree hay or of willow um, until eventually she, she got self-sufficient and we were able to put her out in the freshest grass we had. But um, it was very interesting and since then we always make sure that at lambing time we have about 100 bushels, as, as I call them, of, of reserved willow tree hay, which is, which is what they love more than anything else. Um, so yeah, it's it's Amazing. it's uh, and it's a resource that you can make on your farm um, while sequestering carbon. Yeah, it's 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 um. I think if I think about everything that that I would try to do here, um, it's a really, I guess, clear and elegant expression of that. Um, if if I look at farming over the that, that past year, what what all farmers complain about is the the cost and price of inputs. And what they also fear is the lack of trust that the pouring of inputs into farming is creating from 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 their customers, and 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 this is a renewable resource along with other things like wildflower hay meadows. There are all sorts of things, and and, and agroforestry of having trees, which is something we do as well. Just having other types of trees, um, which can be crop trees in various ways uh, in your fields. These are all a very elegant way to answer those problems. They reduce your costs, um, they they increase your carbon sequestration, um, they increase your biodiversity and they increase um, if you are clever about how you plant you can have a constant stream of pollinator food from the very early end of February right through until until nearly the beginning of December with your ivy you can have that running all the way through um, and and this is also um, a story that, that that customers who are increasingly nervous especially over the last summer with with essentially Europe being on fire who were increasingly nervous and worried and increasingly distrustful of a farming which has 
provided massive quantities of cheap food, but at an incredible cost. Um, it's a very elegant answer to that. It's a, it's, a, it's a great story to involve those people with. People are hungry for, for food solutions that will enable them to have access to food that they enjoy, that they want to have, but in ways that they feel are sustainable and ethical. And, 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 and literally, Willow, you put a stick of Willow in the ground, you have a tree in 10 years' time. It's the easiest thing in the world. And, and your animals will ignore everything else and will love it. So it's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very elegant solution and uh, it communicates so much about, about what you can do simply um, from, from simply planting a tree that wants to grow. Yeah, and an animal that wants to eat it. It's a tapestry of boxes being ticked. I think you've described it brilliantly. Michael, um, I love the expression that you talked about, um, conservation grazing, um, because I suppose now, as Keith was saying there, you know, the, the, the consumers are questioning the idea of livestock farming. But what you do is different to that idea of intensive grazing. How did you become interested in it at the start? Very simply got involved in, in regenerative farming, which, which was how we started. Whenever my wife and I both, both worked, um, we inherited a farm which was quite run down. And to look at farming in the conventional way uh, it had been let for um, to a dairy farmer was very rich in terms of the, the inputs that had been put on the land. And we kind of got together and decided that that wasn't what we wanted to do. We didn't want to spray the land. We didn't want to fertilize the land and we wanted it to be more diverse than, than it was. And so we started off on, on the home farm that, that um, we had responsibility for at that stage um, and decided to get some traditional cattle because we felt they could utilize the land better than, than any other species. We chose the Irish moiled cow and started off with six Irish moiled cows on, on the farm. And um, my wife and I come, both come from ecology backgrounds, so we would observe very much what was happening. And we saw with those cattle the way in which they, they browsed the land. They didn't just eat the grass in the fields. They, they ate the nettles in the corner at certain times of the year. They ate the, um, the ragwort as it appeared, sometimes in the spring. And they seemed to be using plants in a way that they knew how they were self-medicating or whatever. But some of the most interesting things were the hedgerows where they would graze their way along the hedgerows. They would be eating um, in the autumn time. They would be pulling hawthorn berries off the trees. They'd be eating at the at the leaves. Uh, Keith was saying there about brambles. The Irish moil cow will eat away brambles. I don't know how they manage it, but they, they seem to be quite happy to graze both at the leaves and the stalks. And where we are in the Loch Ney Basin, uh, the soils are, are wet and clay, and our hedges have a large amount of alder and a large amount of willow in them, just, just naturally. And I noticed at certain times they would be eating at the, at the hay. There were definite browse lines up into the hedge where they were eating, sorry, at the, at the willow and at the branches. And even on occasions, I've seen them stripping bark off the branches. Um, and obviously keen to get at what was behind the um, under the juices and so on. So the conservation grazing really stemmed from that. Irish moils are our native animal. They are the animal in Ireland that um, formed our uplands through transhumans that was used as the main grazier across all of the, the landscapes that we have. And so seeing them browse their way through and, and as I say, select and self-medicate the the plants that are growing there, uh, 
I, I find that a, a very interesting way of, of working. Um, the I wouldn't have been a convert to silvopasture as such, or agri, or um, you know the looking at at um, trees in the landscape or or in my fields, but as as I've watched the animals over the years, I've become more convinced that there are very good beneficial uh, properties in in the trees. So I started looking a bit more into the research of this, and um, obviously picked up on projects that are going on at the moment in terms of of willow and others that are increasing the amount of carbon that's sequestered, and working sort of with with the the literature that i had willow is very productive as i say for where we are in fact a recent study around the loch Ness basin showed that within a five mile radius of loch Ness, there is somewhere in the region of two and a half thousand hectares of unmanaged uh, willow woodland and another 2400 hectares of scrub that is developing so my thoughts were there's a huge resource here, very, very productive resource of, of willow growing and thinking, could that be utilized or used in a way that would benefit the farmers whose land that's growing on? Not just for the, the biodiversity and the and the carbon which are being sequestered and are being supported. Clearly, we're in a, a, a nature and a climate crisis and um, having trees growing is, is a very strong um, a strong way of, of trying to get the the um, our carbon footprint lowered a bit as we work towards net zero. But if we could provide a use for those trees and a recognisable use for those trees and to harvest some of that productivity, I felt that that would be worth doing. So um, last year, I, I let some of the cattle into plantations. I have about 17 hectares of, of what's more or less wet willow woodland and they just they grazed what they could reach of the trees before they they grazed the grass below them which was i find mm -hmm. interesting and um i decided this year to try and make some tree hay so i've got about 75 tree hay faggots i think i think i i heard them called or or bushels or bales um and i've um th those were wrapped up in late august when i felt the the productivity was at its best I'd heard it said that with grasses, if you harvest late in the day, there's the highest levels of sugars and so on because the tree has been photosynthesizing. So in, in the late afternoon, we, we cut the willow, bound it up tight. And interestingly, when you, you cut tree branches um, in the summertime, when the leaves are green, they don't seem to fall off. They stay intact. And then you can feed that to your cattle um, or sheep or whatever your ruminants are later in the year. So that's that's kind of the story that that we have in terms of our our trees and tree hay. I love that idea that you've watched your animals so closely. Is that something that you would recommend to other farmers to just let the animals almost lead the way in terms of what what you're feeding them and how you're managing them? I suppose it's it's something that I, I've noticed a lot over the years. Um, I inherited a farm from a, a grandfather and an uncle, and my grandfather was a real countryman. He he observed the wildlife, he observed the seasons, he observed everything. And he would have told me about cattle eating different plants and doing different things and, you know, how they behaved when it was going to rain and how they behaved when there was going to be a storm. And and so I suppose that's always been something that, that I've I've had. But as an ecologist and, and someone just 
curious. I've never been happy with animals grazing in a field with a monoculture of ryegrass. I think that's just like, you know, them eating fast food constantly. And I, I don't think that's terribly good for them in terms of their nutrition. So that was something that, that we were determined to do whenever we took over the farm was to increase the diversity of our sward and to increase the, the way in which cattle could graze. And so I think it is important that, that folk take time to observe their cattle and, and kind of move among them. The old saying was that, you know, a healthy animal is one that you can scratch the back off. And if you're scratching the back of an animal, you're watching it, you're seeing what it's doing, you're knowing what it's doing. And I would go with that adage, I think. Fascinating. And I love that image of a farmer having the time and being amongst their animals in that way. Katerina, can I ask you about that idea of the medical benefits that animals get from eating from trees? I suppose it links into that idea of methane emissions. I mean, is there a is there a similarity between us having a, an unhealthy diet and feeling full of gas and an animal you know, having a diet that produces more gas than it would be if it was more healthy. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, and I agree with Skip and Michael with everything. And um, it's not surprising that um, you know, Skip uh, used willow to, to to as a solution to solve problems with animals. So, um, especially with willow, it's I I used to call it like the, the water of willow because. Because of the fact that um, these proactive compounds tannins are there, it has multiple benefits for the animal health. Um, for example, the, uh, I, the presence of uh, salicin, which is like the aspirin for the, for the animal, uh, it's improved the full animal health. Uh, about uh, the parasites, is very important for that also because tannins can act directly on the development of different internal parasites and, you know, stop their development or just kill them uh, or improve the whole animal's health. Um, and the other thing that has been observed, especially with uh, with Reno, is that uh, the animal doesn't suffer from bloat and gas uh, uh, issues because fermentation, it works properly. So we have a better uh, utilization of all the nutrients in the room and the animal is, doesn't feel this gas uh, 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 blood feeling. Um, of course, it's, it's all related. And um, if we want to have a connection with, with us, as you mentioned, with, with the human, then also the, um, the quality of animal products also improve. And this is also something we need to, to note and take into consideration. Um, so it's multiple benefits for, for the animal here, for the environment, for the animal products. The meat, the meat and milk from these systems is better for us than from more intensive systems then? Yes, yes. So there are studies, it's not a surprise that they found that the meat protein level or milk composition was changed for animal grazing in, in these kind of systems. Also, the quality of the meat, meat, uh, meat was improved, so the color was better, the taste was better, more tenderness uh, 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 was improved. So a lot, a lot of benefits. And uh, as Michael said, it's it's good, you know, that to have not only grass in the field but also other options. Um, and it's not surprising, like Keith mentioned, these deficiencies in different minerals. Uh, most of the deficiencies in the animal we see from grass fed only. But when we include these trees, 
it, it's a, it's fabulous. It's a fantastic source of, you know, zinc, cobalt, uh, selenium, vitamin. So it's, it's very, very um, interesting. And those are expensive inputs if you're buying them, but uh, if you can produce them on your own farm, all the better. Absolutely. Let's take a break there. Tree fodder has such potential for animal health and methane emissions. Next up, our guests will be talking about the food potential, how to use trees like willow, and the long-term benefits that trees bring. Jim, uh, I think sometimes farmers feel that putting trees into their farms is giving up something, that you you have to give up land to, to trees. But increasingly, from what I'm hearing in this episode, trees give us a lot back or can give farmers a lot back. Um, is willow becoming, you know, I suppose it's a almost a despised, I've heard people describe them as weed trees, you know, might have been grown for biomass or carbon. But are you excited by the potential that this, this can become a really healthy feedstock for animals? Yes, indeed. Uh, and when you talk about farmers giving up land and so on for trees, that was one of the original uh, drivers behind the agroforestry program was to try and introduce trees into farms and not have farmers give up the, the, the primary purpose they saw of the land, which was to graze livestock on. Um, and, and as you mentioned, trees have been planted in different ways. Um, we've, we know that willow is a very fast growing crop. It responds well to coppicing. Uh, and it's particularly suited as a biomass crop. Coppicing might might be a term that people aren't familiar with. Yeah. What, how does it work? Coppicing is really where you cut off the plant, usually uh, uh, almost near ground level, every few years. And when you cut off plants like well and other plants, obviously, they, they will sprout and produce lots of shoots uh, with with very leafy growth on those. So willow in in the the, the tree families are are particularly good at this coppicing. Uh, once you cut them off, they will grow again very quickly. And for maximizing their biomass production, a sort of a rotational age of about three years was, was found to be uh, to get them into a state when they were still very productive and you could still physically harvest them. Mm -hmm. So biomass plantations of, of short rotation coppice willow were reasonably popular uh, over the country in the last lot of years. Um, for various reasons to do with the price of energy and harvesting them and, and various government schemes that went wrong a bit. Um, quite a few of, of those coppice plantations are now fairly redundant and they're just been left to, to grow, the willows just to grow away. Mm -hmm. um, people have then looked at that and said, is there any other way we could use this willow? Uh, and some people who are interested in the idea of, of uh, tree fodder uh, and the, the, using the coppice willow, and I pay tribute to Professor John Gilliland of Queens, and uh, who has been particularly interested in this because he has some of this coppice willow on his land. And on his farm, they are they've taken some of or he has taken some of his willow plantations, which have been, if you like, abandoned for biomass production, and are now cutting those on a short rotation cycle, so they're getting maximum leaf growth. Um, and letting animals strip graze those and finding throughout the season, throughout the grazing season. And as the animals graze the willow, as, as uh, uh, both Keith and Michael have said, that they, they, they really enthusiastically tackle the willow and have the opportunity to, to graze back onto grass at the same time. That there is removing a lot of the twigs and branches as well as the leaves of the willow. 
that grazed piece can then be left for perhaps one or two years to regrow to, to a very vigorous willow plantation. So you could build into a, a grazing rotation, animals having access to an area of willow uh, each year, not for the whole year round, but for certain times of the year. And uh, they're using a lot of scientific procedures to measure the benefits of those willow about the things that Katarina and, and Keith have been talking about. So I think it's a very exciting development. Yeah. Instead of cash for ash, we've got feed for animals. Maybe that's where the, the biomass is headed. Um, Katarina, you, uh, your study is looking at that grazing of willow as well. So rather than making, you know, people having to come in and make fodder or cut it, that actually the animals themselves are just grazing willow plantations. Um, what, what are you finding from that? Yeah, that? That's a fantastic. So we are involved in that study that Jim mentioned. It's a great example what are the potential of willow? So what the potential towards net zero, you know, carbon farming. So what we found is like cows love grazing in the willow. So it's fantastic. You can see that they eat almost anything and they are so happy and healthy. And um, then uh, uh, with scientific methods, we also want to see what happened with the environmental impact and the emissions in this something we're working on. Uh, but it's really, really impressive. Like, we can see the other um, uses of we know, except of biofuelino and, you know, biomass. Is there a lot of work, Keith, um, in harvesting the willow for, you know, for a farmer who says, well, that sounds great, but uh, it's too much work and I'm, you know, uh, it's not something that I have the, the manpower or the woman power to do. Uh, what, what's involved in harvesting it? I'd first say, um, you know, farmers, they were a breed of people who were well used to hard work. <laughs> um it's it it is uh, there's various ways of doing it uh, I, i'm i do it almost completely manually as as our farm is as low um input and that includes oil as we can make it so we use a lot of hand tools and always have um so it, it can be very labor intensive um the traditional way to do it which is the way that we do it um uh, is um to harvest it uh, early in the morning, um, ideally in July or August. We don't harvest till September because of the hedgerow cutting provisions in Ireland. Um, but typically you'd harvest in July or August because that's when the nutrition content is highest. Um, and then uh, you lay it out for, for about half of a day on a hot day um, outside. You can you can string it up in a fence line or some people will put um, rope or, 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 uh, or tree branches up between trees for it to hang to be clear of the ground so it can dry. And you're cutting branches from the willow, are you? You're cutting branches from the willow or or you're coppicing as well, if you want. So it, coppicing is like, um, it's like a cut and come again lettuce. If you can, you chop the whole thing down and you can cut it up and, and then it will grow back literally, you know, before the season is out. If you cut in, cut in July or August, if it's willow, it will already start growing back. Um, and, and we bundle those up usually using old baling twine from, from previous seasons or, or, or sisal, which will break down in the field. And then you just hang that up somewhere that's... Um, uh, in shelter, um, ideally out of the sun, because that will begin to bleach the nutrition from it. And you hang it up until uh, it becomes, um, it feels like parchment paper between your fingers. Uh, that can be four or five days in, in a heat wave, uh, or, or it can be two or three weeks um, in, in September in, in the northwest of Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. And then that will keep for one, two, or maybe three years. You can see the color of the leaves are still quite green. And they hold on to a lot of the nutrition, a lot of their sugar, a lot of their carbohydrates, a lot of their, their energy and protein 
protein is kept if you if you if you do it correctly and don't don't let the sun bleach it and then we just put it up in in the hayloft and um, tied loosely so just compress the bundle slightly by hand using a, a wellington boot and an old belt um, and then that gets tied up so that it's it's small enough because it can be quite huge and and that way we can fit um we could probably fit about four or five hundred bales of that um into the hayloft um and four or five hundred would would be probably enough to to feed our flock for an entire month um but the advantage is that it's much more nutritionally dense than than hay is for example mm-hmm. and it, it would be comparable in some circumstances to 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 the to the protein and sugar density that you might get with oats in some cases it might even be more than that depending on on the variety and, and how you've dried it and how well that's gone and things like that but it can be it can be quite high in comparison so you have you know a free food stuff that that's that's far better than a lot of the grain you're feeding that's cost you absolutely nothing apart from from a degree of hard work and, and farming is a substitution of hard work for money <laughs> um, to generate profit you can spend money to generate a profit or you can spend hard work and and farmers much prefer spending hard work than than money um, <laughs> and yeah th- that's that's what's involved there are there are other ways to do it so for in in Sweden for example where there was a tradition of doing this um, uh, another way to do it is to grow birch trees is what is what they would often grow in, in Sweden so you grow birch trees along the edge of your field um, and you grow the birch trees and, and you use them for two crops, which is, you know, all the agroforestry we have, whatever we do in terms of trees, we're looking for at least two, three or four crops from each thing, which is another thing. Um, so um, the birch will be grown along the edges of the fields. And and for firewood harvesting in, in Sweden, one of the things I used to do was cut the trees down let them fall and leave the leaves on them to dry the wood rapidly um, so that it would burn in time for the winter season. So that would happen in July. The leaves, uh, the tree would be felled in and then you can just let your animals in to, to strip the um, to strip the leaves from the trees. Um, there are farmers in, in America who are quite conventional. That's, that's what they would do as well. They would have poplar trees, which are also cut and come again coppice trees that are really digestible to, to livestock and farmers in, in america who who i've talked to that's what they do they have long lines of really fast growing poplar and they fell them on a rotation um into the field and then let their cattle in and then harvest the firewood as well so they're taking two crops um for relatively little work so if you're willing to think about it in terms of um think about it laterally and and if you're able to ensure that you get more than one crop for it, it does become it does become kind of a better idea and you know it's a free feed that's that's comparable to the grain that's becoming increasingly mm-hmm. expensive at the moment and will continue to do so so yeah it's a huge amount of work but but also you know the idea that that like michael was saying if you're watching your animals you're watching what they're eating and why and you're seeing the benefit there's that thing as well that you know you're giving your animals something that they really want to have and and you're following their wisdom mm-hmm. in that because they are self-medicating they are taking care of themselves and and that's what most farmers want they want healthy happy animals who have a balanced diet that that um that they can thrive on because i suppose michael the health of an animal actually translates into economic benefits you know that the healthier the animal the better the product at the end as a farmer and the lower your vets bills and the lower your inputs um i i was also struck by a phrase you used and i suppose it's a phrase we're hearing a lot about family farms and i get the impression that at fort house farm your farm is there's a bigger definition of the family that it's not just the humans in the farm that that inspire your thinking um would that be would that be a fair way to describe it? <laughs> yes, it, it it is. But I don't know that we're that different um, to to a lot of other far- farms. I think there are over twenty five thousand 
farms registered within Northern Ireland, and and you know if that's a quarter of what there is in Ireland, you know there's maybe one hundred and twenty thousand farms in in Ireland, and you know among that you've got a, a wide range. But I think in the bell curve, in the middle of it all, the traditional farm would be a family farm, and would be people who are not just getting all their income these days from from the farm, and so you know ways in which you can look after your, your your animals in a way that reduces your inputs are going to be very very important a lot of folk have have worked away maybe farming in a traditional way until this last year has come along and suddenly folk are seeing that maybe following those traditional ways and, and i'm talking about you know modern tradition of using fertilizers and sprays and reseeding and so on are, are maybe going to price them to a stage where they're they're maybe not able to cope and the way that that we've looked at our farm and and you know as i say it's a it's a joint venture the way that we've looked at our farm is that if we can farm with the lowest level of inputs possible and even though we maybe don't get top prices for our our cattle at market maybe the differential that we get the, the the sort of the output minus the input actually may end up that that we're maybe making as much if not more on the farm and I like to think that if my main inputs are sunshine and rain, they grow good grass, they grow good trees, they grow good vegetation. And um, if we can keep as close to that as possible, uh, we're not taxed on those yet. And uh, that's that's where I think uh, you know we'd like to be on, on our farm, keeping inputs to an absolute minimum. And then with the benefits that that I've seen with, with animals, we, we wouldn't treat our, our stock unless we spotted one that maybe was having a, a worm burden or a problem. And, you know, the animals do appear to self-medicate. There's, there's no question in that. And if they can browse across a landscape that is what traditional animals would have done, traditional cattle would have grazed across a landscape, not, not just being corralled into one field and have only the choice of what's available there. The animals do move around. They do self-medicate i'm certain of it they they graze on different species at different times of the year and and with that i think we get a healthier animal i, I was at a conference last week which was called healthy animals healthy environment and it was interesting because there were a lot of vets and a lot of the the, the pharmaceutical companies present at that uh, and uh, I kind of felt that a question that I wanted to ask at the end, unfortunately I wasn't selected, was maybe if you looked at healthy environment, healthy animals, it might have been as good a title and maybe a lot cheaper in the long run. So so that, that would be where we come from, is trying to look at natural solutions, looking at the way in which we can use the vegetation and the, the natural plants on our landscape, which are probably the most productive, you know, the, the our trees and our native plants they're there for a reason they were selected because they suited the environments that were growing and uh, and that those will provide the best fodder for our cattle mm -hmm. and sheep and livestock it's a really compelling argument i think um katarina that idea of because uh, as you were describing the benefits of willow i was thinking yes if a pharmaceutical company could bottle this as an animal medication it would be a, a you know it would sell itself um are are the animal nutrition pharmaceutical industry looking at benefits of willow and and is that something that is also a potential for people developing willow yeah that's a very good question actually 
there are some people looking already on that because you can see the market, there are some extracts of from Willow. You can see salicin already as an extract. So it's not something that they, they didn't realize that there is a, you know, the market an opportunity there. Uh, but still, I mean, there is, there is a lot of uh, area that you can develop there. But it's, I absolutely agree with Michael, as you say, sustainable agriculture, it's our target now. Um, and we know increase is really the option there because uh, what we're talking about now is we want to reduce antibiotics. You want to use the use and use the use of the drugs for the animals. Uh, we would like to reduce the import of like um, protein sources like soya from abroad. And now this is the case that we have a local homegrown protein, uh, homegrown you know uh, medicine with different benefits. So it's uh, it's really amazing. Let's let's bottle it, Keith. You. Yes. Michael used the great phrase "modern traditions." Um, I mean, you live in a in a farming neighbourhood in Roscommon. Um, what do your neighbouring farmers make of, uh, you know, tree hay collection day? And uh, is there is there much interest? Um, there's a degree of sceptical curiosity. <laughs> um, so um, it's it's interesting talking to lots of family farmers lots of conventional farmers and i use that that word conventional farmer i don't use it in a negative or pejorative way there's a huge amount of wisdom hard work dedication and resilience in that and and there's a huge amount of learning for me as a very non-traditional or traditional type of farmer it's the same thing bizarrely um mm-hmm. In talking to lots of farmers, I, there's a strain running through everybody's conversation, which is a strain of genuine fear. So you have farmers who are, you know, who are investing in their farms in ways that they know their children will have to pay off financially. Or they've been here for 120 years and they've seen a shift from the type of farming that I actually do. Like I'm, I'm essentially trying to farm like it's 1799 um, uh, or 1920. Um, and, and lots of, you know, lots of farmers um, either have a memory of that if they're of an older generation. And you can still see that, like if you go through the, the, the fields of, of North Common, there are places where the hazel and willow were three deep. And because that's what home looks like and it, it has a meaning and there's a right to it for a lot of people and and they walk through their fields and it makes them feel that this is this is how they should farm this is where they should farm this is their connection to the land to the family to tradition i think that tradition is really strong and alive and there's a tension between modern economics and that modern tradition mike was talking about and the message of produce 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 and do that using inputs and farmers are increasingly there's a massive fear there's a massive fear of of the the problematic economics which michael was flagging as well there's a massive fear of both the economic and the environmental cost of of um of inputs like as a local farmer to me who's been here for 120 years his family said to me there's you know we can't see another way to do it at 79 cents a meter for milk but we can't continue doing this because land can't continue to give you know, you can't continue to take from land. Water can't continue to give. Um, so there's, there's, there is, there's fear and there's curiosity. And I think farmers are beginning to feel around for what they would have thought ten years ago were unorthodox solutions. I think they're beginning to feel around for that. And there's a hunger as well to be trusted again because you know farmers are increasingly feeling um, that um, that the people that we rely on, that we work with, that we feed, that we work for, the people at the other end of, of the fork um, don't trust us. 
and they're increasingly not trusting us and and there's a huge fear about what farming is going to look like in 10 15 20 years time so i think there's a lot of farmers are are maybe 10 years ago would have been would have been you know we're going to produce we're going to get bigger we're going to have ryegrass this is what we're going to do this is how you farm now this is how it works we don't farm like my father and grandfather and mother and grandmother farmed it's totally different but there's a lot of people beginning to to look backwards in time beginning to look at what they saw as unorthodox solutions um, as an answer to that that insecurity that uncertainty and that fear and i think there's a strong feeling that 10 years down the line um 15 years at the at the utmost farming is going to look completely different to to what it does at the moment the future of farming is looking different to people from now i mean is it going to be a better future do you think i think we have um we have no choice i think farmers are increasingly and more quickly realizing that we have no choice i think farming organizations and representatives are are perhaps behind the curve in fact they are behind the curve, but they're perhaps behind the curve of other farmers as well. I think there's a, an increasing kind of murmur of farmers going, we're being badly represented because we know change is coming down the line. We know it has to. It's our children who have to live in this world too. And they have to farm in this world and they have to make a living in this world. And, and you know, the way we're doing it at the moment, it doesn't feel like that can continue for the next 10 or 15 years and people are i think there's a moment waiting to happen where where, where farmers are, are looking to be trusted again to have viable farms again to have localities and areas in which their children want to grow up in and can grow up in because there's, there's viable work for them there all of these things are coming together and for some farmers that looks a lot like 100 years ago where they're going you know we had mixed farms we had closed fertility cycles um we had farms that were loud with animals and that were loud with nature and had piles of trees in them and this all feels really familiar because for a lot of farmers there's there's i'm going to put it you know perhaps somewhat romantically but there's 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 a small hole in their heart um around the shape of what their farms used to look like and what they look like now. You know, there are 70-year-old men out in the field anxious about whether the cuckoo will come this year, almost with a tear in their eye. That's a very strong thing. And when you ally that to, to, the, to the decrease in trust, um, to the decrease in, in power as well as an economic lobby, because it is decreasing and will continue to, and also their own fear about, about the future, about, about watching Europe burn this summer, and about their families and about the economics and about their tradition and cultures all of these are coming together and i think it's it's a right moment um for farmers and farming to grasp change and and hopefully to lead it because that's how we remain relevant in the next 10 years that's how we keep a voice that's how we keep some control over how we do it by proving that we can be trusted and by having people go actually no we have a vital progressive um, farming lobby who want the best things for us and for themselves and that's the same thing. And I think that moment is now. And I think farming is, is beginning to become ripe for it. It's an amazing call to arms, call to farms. Michael, is there an element of greenwashing that consumers have to uh, battle their way through to actually hear the voice of a farmer, um, you know, who is saying, I, I farm with nature and I farm for nature as well as for production? I mean, is, is there a... Is there a way to give that message? Because that message is constantly being given to us by supermarkets who are selling us food that's being produced at prices where, you know, farmers are forced to go down the intensive route. Uh, do we have to educate consumers on about this? I think there there's a huge amount of, of uh, greenwashing that goes on, you know, right across from where our food comes from. Does it even come from our own country, even though it's maybe labelled here? 
And uh, the, the difficulty, I think, does come to when someone needs to eat and they go into a shop and with the way the cost of living crisis is at the moment, there are pressures on people to, to choose what's cheapest, maybe not necessarily what's best. And, and that's where I suppose farmers would, would want to come you know, to, to a point where you would have a system where, and maybe an expectation that you're trusted enough that the food you produce locally would be the first food that would be purchased. And um, I, I work with an organization in Northern Ireland called the Nature Friendly Farming Network. And we're a group of farmers. It's a farmer-led organization. And we try to get information and knowledge sharing out to the, the folk who are um, you know, other farmers and, and, and other members who are interested to know how folk can farm in a way that, that is nature friendly. I, I do a lot of surveys of, of farms for biodiversity and in, in my job, in my ecology job. And the thing that I find when I'm out, and maybe you know, over, over 300 farms in the last four or five years where I'm doing biodiversity surveys, and I find that on the farm, people love their hedges, they love their trees, they love those corners of the, of the landscape that they have, and they know that it's important to them. And, and I think that over the years, farmers have become, you know, a bit of a bunker mentality that, that the word is that it is farmers who are maybe seen as, as folk who are one, one of the major uh, factors in biodiversity loss. But what's there at the moment is, is surviving on those farms. That's the nucleus of where improvements are going to be made. And so if we can market the way in which we're managing our farms in a positive way, then the food that we produce will be seen as being much better, much better quality. And I think as Keith was saying, we'll start, farmers will start regaining the trust that they have um, and the, that they used to have in terms of the, the products that, that they're producing. But it's it's vitally important that those messages are are you know beacon farms, people who are ambassadors, people who are able to share the information. There's a, a very exciting new website uh, called Grow In, the Growing Innovation Network, and that's a project where um, there are networks there where farmers can raise issues and start chatting online among themselves about how they might be able to progress both innovation and environmental improvements and innovation on their farms. So there, there certainly are some ways in which information is being spread and being spread farmer to farmer where I, I think that's going to be the best way. Yeah, and we're going, we're going to be dealing with Grow In in later episodes of the podcast. So I'm looking forward to hearing a, a lot more about that. Jim, we, we've talked before about some kind of labelling system, you know, having a, a farming for nature label or an agroforestry label it, it is it does seem to be again a no-brainer to let consumers know about the the brilliant work that's being done by farmers like this and uh you know i have no doubt as a former food writer that people will with with the funds to do it will be happy to maybe treat themselves with a a purchase of that kind of food um rather than just go down the straight cheap food aisle Yes, funny enough, Catherine, I made a note to ask you a question as a well-informed... Oh, no, that's uh, not allowed. Okay, it is. <laughs> well, I know it's not allowed, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. It's all around just branding. We've talked about this this idea of tree fodder, 
you think it's good. We we obviously think it's a great idea, but you as a well-informed observer, how do you think, or what? How could could we could we brand food that's produced from tree fodder, for example? I mean, is there a market there? Is there a way you could do it? Is there are there ploys that you could try and persuade people that look the benefits of having? And we do with a lot of our eggs, for example, our manufacturer are marketed as woodland eggs, but let's go farther to our meat and our milk and so on yeah i mean i think this podcast is part of that it's part of informing people uh you know people who work with animals all the time who i think are going to be quite surprised to hear that animals eat something from a tree you know because as i say i think there is that still that divide between giving space to trees and having productive land so we're now hearing about how trees can be so productive um but I definitely think if I think consumers would be fascinated by this idea that animals have a wisdom and that they can uh, decide themselves what it is that they need um, in a way that goes back to our own tradition of herbal cures and, and knowing when you're feeling unwell that a certain plant in your garden or in your in your neighborhood can help you get better. Um, I think there's a huge yearning for that kind of trust to be back in our food system because we are so connected to you know there there's nobody in in my circle of friends and family who doesn't have a connection to somebody in farming um and i think that little schism which i think is happening is something that people want to be healed and and i think they want farmers to tell them that uh not just tell them but show them that the way food is being produced in ireland can be a real model for sustainable um, ethical food production and that we can do these things on this island still in a way that maybe another food production that's gone further down the road of intensification has been lost and um, that's a really rambly answer to that no, it's, question it's very good and helpful um, and i think i think one of the benefits we can in selling this idea of, of using trees and, and having food produced under it is a pictorial one i mean it, it it's very easy to, if you're trying to say that, look, my form of meal is much better than the, the factory down the road that produces meal. You've just got two bags of meal and an animal beside it and nobody sees mm -hmm. the difference. But with trees, you've got a huge chance for this scene, this pictorial scene of animals, you know, in the shade of a canopy of trees and pasture below them yeah. and living up and nibbling the leaves so that there's... I think there's ways that we can brand definitely with a bit of innovation and a bit of intelligence to, to exploit things you said there. It's a beautiful system. I mean, that's the other thing that strikes me about this. It's a beautiful system. Going back to Katerina's sheep video, which hopefully listeners to the podcast might be able to see on the website. But that looks like a, a very happy sheep, you know, to see animals enjoying food, visibly enjoying food that is natural, that comes from the land around them, that hasn't been grown on a, you know, former rainforest somewhere else in the world and shipped over at huge expense. You know, that sort of crazy commodity um, market thing that, that farmers have been led down. I, what What's your take, Katrina, on the uh, on the selling of the system? I think nowadays, like consumers, they're, you know, they're very, they're aware about the situation that we need to produce more, but we need to produce more sustainably. And there are concerns and they are sensitive about animal health and welfare, about the environment. So I think it, it's just a matter of training them and let them know the information and let them, you know, digest the information because you know, there are so many benefits for the animal from this system. 
for the environment, but also as mentioned earlier about the quality of the animal products. The, the nutritive value of milk and meat can be really, really high compared with, you know, uh, feeding animals only grass or grain. So I think we just need to let people know. And then, and also, yeah, I think then they will think that it's really worth to pay a little bit more, but, you know, support the local economy, support the local agriculture. And make our, make ourselves more food secure. I mean, Michael, is that something that yes. you've been looking at uh, with other farmers um, in your area about that idea of local production and food security? Not, not exactly. Um, but, you know, rethinking food, I think, is a very important thing to do. The, the, the way in which it's produced and, and the way in which people want it to be produced. And I think there's still a gap between that. And, and, you know, we, we find, I think, anybody who appears to go into a system where they're producing food in a way that is using natural solutions, that's trying to cut down on meds, that's trying to cut down on fertilizer inputs. We, we have a member um, in Nature Friendly Farming Network, Ballyboli Dexters, a, a, a guy who came from a, a non-farming background and decided he wanted to start up, uh, you know, producing producing meat um, through Dexter cattle in a way that was nature positive. And he he started off with a few cattle. He built up his, his herd. He's now grazing quite a lot of, of um, land that is using herbal lays. And he finds that he cannot produce enough meat to service the market that's there. That's one, one example. Uh, if everybody was doing that, maybe that market would, would get flooded. But I think people are, and, and Keith mentioned it earlier, people are getting more and more aware of where their food is coming from, the traceability that they want to know about their cattle. And if we can show, and I'm picking up on Jim's point, if we can show that the animals are being produced in a way that they've got a good environment, which is nature positive, that is good for our net zero targets and our biodiversity targets, and that is providing for wildlife all year round from first pollens on the willows in early in the year for the bees to the late pollen on the ivy later in the year. That's all going to be good for the environment. It's going to be good for the animals and consumers are going to be attracted to that. So I think that's kind of where we, we, we need to go. And if we're cutting down on our inputs, Surely we're increasing then our, our profits or at least decreasing our losses if we're working that way. So there's a real hope uh, here in this story for a happier and healthier farming environment, both economically and um, environmentally for, for the future. Keith, um, are you very hopeful for the future? Do you think this is a hinge moment where things are going to change for the better? Um, I'm very nervous for the future and I think all of us are and I think that's where the hinge moment comes from. Um, I am optimistic because um, you you absolutely have to be um, to get up in the morning to go and, and to do things. Um, you know, when I engage with, 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 with my neighbour farmers, they're, they're all good people. Um, they all want to do good when they get up in the morning. You know, as another one of them said, you don't get up in the morning wanting to destroy nature. That's that's not what you do. You know, you want to get up. Um, some of them feel high bend by, by, by economics, which is probably the biggest issue. 
And once we begin to solve that, and, and part of that is solving itself as well, like increasingly farmers are coming to see that an input heavy, um, especially for small and medium farmers, an input heavy model is is increasingly becoming economically unviable. So um, I, I think as we see, you know, um, a cap reform coming on stream and hopefully becoming more aligned with what we need to do in the next 10 years uh, that's going to be a big thing as well as soon as granting becomes part of that um, perhaps if the, the current acre scheme becomes a little bit better and a little bit easier to access and more broadly applied and more rigorous as well or more demanding that's going to be a thing as well um, so um, yeah I think I'm I would say in terms of granting and in terms of regulation I'm realistic I think that's going to become increasingly stringent increasingly difficult to to, to farm conventionally in and the push is going to be much much more towards farming with nature farming organically farming in an input um uh light with, with decreasing inputs with decreasing fertilizer with decreasing um imported soya and things like that and um and it will become increasingly economically unviable to do anything else uh, you know what the market will do in terms of making it economically viable is is a whole other question but you know we all know that everything that needs to be done it needs to be done now this all needs to happen now um so i, I am optimistic um i wanted to to to, to mirror something that that michael said um and and i was just thinking about it and i was going if i were to distill the whole agroforestry tree forage thing down into one word it's it's resilience um and 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 that's why it's so elegant it's it's economic resilience because it reduces your inputs um, and increases the health of your livestock and and gives you um you know uh, it gives you more more forage and more uh more food per per hectare than you would ordinar ordinarily get it decreases your input costs um, in a time of increasing climate instability, it gives you the type of resilience that trees are drought resistant, largely, and much more so than grasses. So you'll have a crop of food. Um, they give you a possibility for diversification. You know, if you want to be a, a beekeeper, which I am, having piles of willow and hazel is a fantastic plan because that gives you an early season. Um, in times of heat wave and stress, your animals are protected by, by the trees that you've grown both in terms of the food they have and the shelter they're given, and also in times of, of rain and flooding as well. Um, you're providing um, climate reme remediation in terms of flood protection, um, and you're creating an economically and ecologically resilient farm, both for yourself and for your greater community. And it's that, that's it for me in one word. That's the elegance of it. It's this one single thing that generates resilience in all of these different ways that everybody here has been talking about. For me, it's that word. It's resilience, ecological, um, economical, um, ethical, livestock welfare, and and a farm sustainability resilience. That's, That's a, a fantastic summing up of of our Willow episode, which I'm delighted we've been able to have such experts in this whole area. So, Katerina, Keith, and Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Jim, I just wanted to end with you on that question of resilience um, and how these systems are. You know, at this point in history, we will look back and say, well, this might have been the saving of livestock farming. Do you think that agroforestry has the potential to bring livestock farming into a future where, you know, lab meat and lab milk is going to be competing on the shelves with it? I think it has great potential. I not say that the whole country will be covered in agroforestry or every farm will go 100 percent to agroforestry. They won't. But what I think we're showing by the evidence and the enthusiasm of the people around this podcast and, and many, many others, is that agroforestry is an option that if you had part of your farm at least 
15, 20, 25%, uh, and you increase that, if you increase the, the enthusiasm for that percentage, then using that piece of agroforestry or, or using that silvopasture to integrate it within your current farming practice, you can really make your farm more sustainable. And as Keith said, you can make it more resilient, particularly climate resilient, which is a huge challenge we face. So I'm very optimistic, yes, but it's an option and we've got to offer it and push it to people and show the benefits that it brings. Terrific. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to all our guests. You can do a virtual visit to Michael's farm by visiting the Nature Friendly Farming Network website. That's nssn.org.uk. Keep up to date with Katerina's research on the Queen's University Belfast website and see Keith Brennan's work and writing at his website, Hawthorne Hill Farm, all one word. That's hawthornhillfarm.com. As always, you can find out more about Jim's work and all the other questions you have about agroforestry at Irish agroforestry, all one word, don't say. Thanks for listening. Find out more about the Irish Agroforestry Forum as well as their latest news and events on irishagroforestry, all one word, dot ie. Listen to all of our episodes on your favourite audio platforms, including Spotify and iTunes. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to and share our podcast to spread the word far and wide. This podcast has been produced by the Irish Agroforestry Forum in association with Growin. It is funded by the Woodland Support Scheme provided by the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. I'm your host, Catherine Cleary, and you can find out more about my work with Pocket Forest at pocketforest.ie. This podcast was produced and edited by Karishma Kasurakur from The Curated Pod. This project was supported and led by Maureen Kilgore, Project Coordinator for Agroforestry Education and Promotion, the Irish Agroforestry Forum. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Conversation Beneath the Trees as much as we've loved chatting with our guests. Thanks for listening.